wants to talk to him. He wants to, to, to get to know him more. On the other hand, when Jesus comes in, he does not greet Jesus with any of the, the polite, customary greetings that a, a host would have ordinarily offered to a guest. And so what, what seems to be happening is something like this. It seems that this man has heard enough and seen enough about Jesus that he's intrigued. He's interested. In fact, in verse 39, when he says, if this man were a prophet, that seems to have been the thing he's evaluating. He's seeing enough of Jesus and hearing enough of Jesus and and being told enough about miracles that Jesus is doing that he's thinking to himself, you know, this, this person, this man may be a prophet. And I'd like to have him into my house. I'd like, to, I'd like to figure out what's going on here. So there's an attraction going on. But then the question becomes, why doesn't he greet him well? Well, it seems that the other side of the tug of war is the Pharisees are already speaking out against Jesus. And he knows that to appear to be too favorable toward Jesus will put him on the outs with his fellow Pharisees. And so it seems that he's got this tug of a war, this tug of war going on in his heart. He can't resist the pull. He's got to look into who Jesus is more. But at the same time, he doesn't want to look like he's really giving him a thumbs up because he's afraid of being rejected by his fellow Pharisees. He's under the fear of man. And so I'll have him into my house, but I'll show everybody that I don't really, I don't really approve of him either. And, I, and, I, and I'll, listen, he's trying to have his cake and, and eat it too, right? He's trying to have it both ways here. Trying to satisfy and scratch his itch, while at the same time not costing himself anything in the process. So Jesus is not treated courtesy when he enters Simon's home. Here's a man who seems to be strangely attracted to the Lord Jesus Christ, willing to consider him honestly, willing to consider the possibility that he might be a prophet, but at the same time, so controlled by the fear of man. And listen, we have to add this. Where there is fear of man, there is also love of reputation. Right? Where there's fear of man, there will also be love for one's own reputation. And so he's under the, the constraints that his fellow Pharisees see, uh, that his fellow Pharisees are, are not accepting Jesus. And so under the fear of man and, and experiencing fear for his own reputation, what will the Pharisees think of me? He treats Jesus discourteously. The third thing we see here is this. If I can get some help because this thing's not clicking. There we go. The third thing we see is this. We, we, can, we can surmise that much about Simon the Pharisee, but, but of, about this woman, we know very little. We know that, that she was a sinner. We're told that in the text. But there's been a whole lot of speculation about who this woman was. Some have said that she may have been uh, Mary uh, from Bethany, that 
that uh, was the sister of Lazarus. But that, that seems very, very, very far-fetched. Um, there's too many differences um, in, in, the, in the stories that we read in the other Gospels. It seems that there were two distinct events in which women appeared before him and anointed him with oil. Uh, this does not seem to have been Mary from Bethany. Some have suggested that she was Mary Magdalene. That is pure speculation. At least Mary from Bethany, there's the similarity of the stories to lend some support to it. Mary Magdalene is, well, you know, Jesus cast seven demons out of her. She would be willing to, to worship him lavishly like this. But there's no indication at all that this woman is Mary Magdalene. The, the fact of the matter is, She's just not identified in Scripture. She's not named in Scripture. We don't know who she, who she was. It's, it's, it's certain that it's not the same event that we read in Matthew 26 or in Mark 14 and in, and in John 12. It's, it's a different event. Um, and so let's just leave it that this woman is an unknown woman. We don't know her name. We don't even know the town she's from. Uh, because we don't know where Simon's house is. We just know that she's a woman who was identified as being a sinner. She was a woman with a publicly known sin. Okay. I'm not going to make you raise your hands. How many of us have sins in our past that we would just as soon not have be... Um, the subject of public conversation. Uh, um, it's this is listen. Uh, I I don't I don't need to to do anything magical here or have any gift of the Holy Spirit to tell you we have all sinned. The Bible simply declares that all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sinned that has touched our lives. I don't really know anybody that's, that, that would be thrilled about having their sins be dragged out in the public eye to be known by all, to be talked about and inspected by all. But what we know about this woman is that her sins were of a sufficiently public nature that it was that they were known in her community. There I'm going to stop, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a few moments. That's what we know about her. The alabaster vial of ointment was no trinket. It was no trinket. It, it had value to it, both in the vial and in the ointment that, that uh, the vial held. But that doesn't mean that we know for certain what her economic status was. There were vials of various sizes, um, ointments of better or less quality. Uh, each one was precious to the person that had it according to what their means was. So a poor person might not have as nice of a, of a vial with as expensive of a perfume as a rich person would. But still, these were not things that would have been inconsequential to anybody. 
They were, they were objects that would have had value to the person that owned it. So, so we, can, we can consider that, that regardless of what this woman's economic status was, whether she was poor or whether she was rich, whatever her class of people was, she, she is bringing to the Lord Jesus something that is of great value to her. She is, she is lavishing on something, pouring out upon the Lord Jesus something that is of significant value to her. Real quickly, before we, uh, before we move on to the, the, the main points, I want to just focus for a second on what this story is calculated to teach us. The story that happens there in the middle, when Jesus talks about the two debtors, the one who owes more than the other, and they're both forgiven, and which one loves more? What is it that, that this story, that the, whole, the whole narrative that we have here, what is it that this is intended to accomplish? What is it that, that this is calculated to accomplish? Well, the first thing is, it's intended to demonstrate that Jesus was indeed a prophet that knew what was inside of the human heart. So in verse 39, Simon says, if he knew what kind of woman she was, how could he possibly be a prophet? And instead of exposing that Jesus knows what kind of woman she is, Jesus exposes that he, that he knows what kind of man Simon is. Isn't that interesting? I'll show you I'm a prophet, and I won't use somebody else to do it. I don't need to expose her to prove that I'm a prophet. I'll prove that I'm a prophet by exposing you to you. Isn't that something? So, so, so what we have in this account is, is a woman coming to Jesus, a sinful woman, Simon saying if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Uh, he, that's, that's some evidence to me that he's not a prophet. And Jesus proceeds to expose Simon's heart, knowing what he's thinking and demonstrating in story form, I know what's inside your heart. I know what you're thinking about. And in that, he acts as a prophet towards Simon. The second thing that's intended here is what Jesus does is, is a, um, uh, is a gent that's supposed to be but, a gentle but clear rebuke to Simon. It's a gentle but clear rebuke to Simon. Um, Jesus' story is, well, it's clear enough to pierce his heart, but it's, it's certainly not a ruthless story that hammers Simon. And yet Jesus is going to speak to this man's heart, to the issues that are going on inside of Simon. And so it's a, it's a gentle but a clear rebuke to Simon. The third thing is that it's intended to teach us a vital lesson about the relationship between love and forgiveness. Now, it might not be the lesson that it appears to be at first blush, but we'll get to that in a moment. It is intended, however, to be a lesson about love and forgiveness. Now, this is not the main point of the message, so I don't want to get distracted here for long. But um, 
But let me just pause for one second to say this much. I think as Christians, we all understand that this word forgiveness is very much at the very core of what Christianity is about. It is very much at the very center of the gospel, right? And its implications are, are absolutely vast. There are things that Scripture says about forgiveness that shows us that, that the fact that you and I are living under the grace of God, that is, the fact that what Jesus did at the cross has purchased for us forgiveness from our sins, has consequences and makes certain demands on us that are massive, that are massive. I've talked about this at other times at length, and we've discussed this back and forth in conversational form in various settings. But when Jesus on the sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount says, if you do not forgive men their, their sins against you, their trespasses, neither will my Father in heaven forgive yours. That is a, that is a statement that ought to make believers sit up and pay attention. This thing about forgiveness is not something to, to think lightly about. When your spouse offends you, your ability to forgive is intimately tied with your understanding of what Christ has done for you. And please hear this, that the difficulty, there's, I understand there's various levels. There can be the emotional difficulty that comes with a hurt. But ultimately, please hear this, ultimately, the challenge of forgiving someone else when they sin against you is a call to dive deeper in your understanding of what Christ had to do for you to forgive your sin. It's ultimately asking you the question, do you really understand what you have been forgiven? The parable that Jesus tells that uh, uh, the, the, the servant that owed this massive amount and was forgiven by his Lord and then goes and finds a fellow servant that owes him a relatively small amount and has him thrown in prison. It's all calculated to teach this idea that when you have been forgiven what you have been forgiven that what you owe to anybody else is small by comparison. So forgive. Because the last thing you want to do is have the Lord who's over you reconsider His forgiveness of your sin. You can't afford it. You can't afford it. This is a, this is a profound concept in Scripture. It's a profound concept in Scripture. That the gospel puts us in the position of debtors who, who debtors to Christ who owe forgiveness to each other. It's a debt that you owe to one another, that I owe to you, you owe to me. Listen, if we could practice this, if we practiced this, most of the problems that we have 
in, in our relationships would be otherwise solvable because, because the problems would be constantly being lubricated by the grace of forgiveness being given and extended both ways. That, that concept is vital to what it means to be people of the gospel, to be a people who know how to forgive. This story is intended to be a, a lesson about the relationship between our ability to love and, and what it means to be forgiven, that there's a relationship between these two things. We'll see it in a moment. So, so two things. I want to focus this morning, one, on this Pharisee. Um, can I just ask so that I'm not, am I doing this? When I click, I, or, or are you doing it? Oh, I'm doing it. Okay, so I'll, it's worth me continuing to click then. I just wanted to know. All right, so let's look at the Pharisee this morning. First of all, this Pharisee, Simon, is a prime example of the Pharisaical self-righteousness that Jesus is so adamantly against throughout his ministry. My brothers and sisters, if, if you were to rank sin in terms of its offensiveness to God, I think you could do far worse than to put self-righteousness as number one. You know, we often think of certain sins as being very sinful and very depraved. This one is probably the one that is most offensive to God. If it is true what Jesus said, that, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, if that's true, then we have to come face to face with the fact that Jesus' strongest rebukes were reserved not for gross sinners, but for this. They were reserved for self-righteousness, for expressions of pride and arrogance that's, that viewed oneself as okay when compared to someone else. That self-righteousness is the thing that Jesus points at most strongly and rebukes most profoundly. This self-righteousness is just ugly. It's just ugly. It's ugly. You know, one way to think about it is like this. Uh, James chapter 3 begins with, My brothers, let not many of you be teachers, knowing that you will receive greater condemnation. Right? The idea being, if you know more, you're held to a higher standard. So one could say that it goes something like this. Um, one who knows better is held more accountable for a relatively small matter than someone who does something big and doesn't know any better. That there's a, there's a sense of proportion that, that man, of, of all people, the Pharisees, who most claimed to understand Scripture, should have known what the law was intended to accomplish and teach. And yet they consistently show their commitment to the technicalities while violating the spirit of the law. And Jesus looks at them and says, you experts, it's your self-righteousness that is so ugly. Right? And he rebukes the self-righteousness that he sees. 
Simon is a prime example of this. Where do we see Simon's self-righteousness? Well, first of all, he puts himself in the position of being smart enough to judge whether or not Jesus is a prophet. Now, I know I get it. He was there. We're here. But imagine, in essence, from our perspective, Simon is setting himself up as Jesus' judge. I'm going to evaluate him. <laughs> Wait a second. Who do you think you are, Simon? Right? Who do you think you are? He's, he's putting himself in this position to judge. Regardless of the fact that it's Jesus, this is indeed the problem that we see so consistently with self-righteousness. Is that self-righteousness feels comfortable judging someone else. Self-righteousness develops a comfort level with looking at others and evaluating them. And please hear this. My brothers and sisters, until we are willing to let the Holy Spirit really examine and expose our hearts, we are capable of, of um, theologizing anything. So we can have a judgmental spirit, but we'll flip our Bibles to 1 Corinthians and we'll say, those who are spiritual judge all things. And he himself is judged by no man. And yet, and yet there's no ability for the Holy Spirit to say, your spirit's lousy. Who was it? Uh, I think it was... Um, I don't remember. It was like John Newton or one of those famous preachers from years gone by, went into a particular city, was preaching there, and a woman who was known in the community for having a very critical spirit came up to him after the message and said to him, Brother, I have the gift of discernment. To which he responded, Sister, the Lord would not be displeased for you to hide your gift. You think it's a gift, but your spirit's ugly. And everybody else knows it. It's a critical spirit, right? This, this, thing, this thing of being judgmental. He not only sets himself up as Jesus' judge, he also is willing to identify this woman as a sinner. And he had no problem identifying this woman as a sinner. He's, he's examining Jesus. He's examining the woman. At the same time, he's doing these two things. The story that Jesus tells exposes the fact that, that Simon is either completely unaware of or is justifying his own bad manners. This woman that's a sinner hasn't stopped weeping on my feet. You didn't even wash my feet when I came in. And she's been kissing my feet, and you didn't give me a kiss when I came in. You can, you can judge whether I'm a prophet, and you can judge whether she's a sinner, but you can't see your own bad manners. You can't see yourself. Not only can you not see your bad manners... But forget going the extra step and examining why the bad manners are there. Are you under the fear of man? Are you just protecting your own reputation? What is your problem, right? That, that this, is, this is the thing with self-righteousness. 
It's so skilled at finding what's wrong with somebody else, but seems to be relatively oblivious to the faults that one has in one's, in one's own life. By the way, this is, this is one of the lessons of Romans 2. Romans 2 seems to offer us the hint, the, the likelihood, that the sins that we are most qualified to find in other people, we are qualified to find them because we're the most familiar with them in our own lives. We might not be paying attention to them or acknowledging them, but we have a first-hand relationship with them, so we spot them. It's just that we're good at pointing them out in others while ignoring them in ourselves. This, this truth, listen to me. This, I'm sorry, I don't even like the way that came out. Please hear this. I, I need to hear this myself. right? That, that when I believe I have an insight into a, a weakness in somebody else's life, I would do well to take a moment to ask the Holy Spirit if I see that in them because I know it about myself as well. And very often, there's this subconscious relationship between how strongly I feel about it in your life because of how present I know it is in my own. if I'd allow the Holy Spirit to show it to me. My brothers and sisters, this, this matter of, of self-righteousness is so, so powerfully addressed by the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> Not only is he unaware of his bad manners, but Simon has no sense of his lack of love and grace toward this woman. No lack no, no awareness of it. I said I would return to this. Can I just ask a quick question? How many of you in hearing this, this story talked about or whatever in your, your past, you have either heard or surmised that this woman was, a, was an immoral woman, very possibly a prostitute in town? Yeah, that's pretty common. Can I just ask you a question? What spirit is it that seeks to identify a sin in a woman that is not named in Scripture? Why does it matter? God didn't think it important to tell us what sin she was guilty of. Somehow, somehow, sometimes, we feel the need to ask questions that have been deliberately left alone in Scripture. I found this fascinating as I was, as I was studying. There seemed to be two approaches to this. One approach was, um, while her sin was public, prostitution would be a, a, a reasonable explanation. And then there was a couple commentators I ran across that said this. I won't quote it exactly, but it'll be close. One of the, them said something close to this. Where scripture does not name the sin, 
we would be prudent to think no worse of the sinner than we have reason to actually think. And as I was sitting there reading that, I was, I was, that is a beautiful spirit. That's a beautiful spirit. That I would not think any worse. Do you, do you realize that's, that's, that's the same sentiment that, exp, that is expressed in 1 Corinthians 13? Right? That love thinks no ill, thinks no, doesn't assume anything evil about the other person, doesn't make that assumption. See, I'm, I'm not intending to point the finger, but I'm intending to point, my, my intention is to point out in this how easy it is for us to fall into the trap of needing to identify another person's sin. Jesus didn't identify it. The gospel writer didn't identify it. There was a sin, somehow it became publicly known. That's what we know, leave it alone and move on. Right? But it shows us what this tendency in the human heart is to examine. I think it's at least wor worth asking the question, is there a little bit of Pharisee in us that drives the need to identify the sin in another person? Let's close with a brief look at this woman. Consideration of the Pharisee. Quick, quick consideration of this woman. This woman demonstrates for us the power of repentance. Uh, I, I, I'm not re remembering now if it was last week or the week before that I threw out there that statistic that has been studied that somewhere between 70% and 93% of communication is nonverbal. Uh, has anyone ever told you they're sorry and not a thing about their apology seemed sorry? Never had that happen? I don't know, maybe I've even done that. Said I'm sorry because I knew it was the right thing to do. And My brothers and sisters, true repentance is a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing. I know there's differences in personality and not everybody is as emotionally expressive as the next person. But, but it is easy to look at this story and say, um, well, we talked about racism last week, so I better be careful, right? You know, in the Middle East, they got some pretty over-the-top emotional ways. You ever seen their funerals? They parade a casket through the streets and everybody's wailing and howling and carrying on. We're more prim and proper, right? It's just their culture. They're just over the top. Listen, please, please hear this. 
There is something about repentance that is intended to be powerful. And when you see repentance, when you see repentance, if you're unmoved by it, there is something seriously wrong. Because, listen, when you see remorse and you see regret and you see a desire for forgiveness, I mean, those are things that ought to just melt the believer's heart. They ought to just melt us. Because we've all been in that position of, man, this is a weight on my conscience and I would do anything for my conscience to be relieved of this. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Repentance is a powerful thing. God responds profoundly to repentance. And I put this up there to pique your interest in both directions. Both of these scriptures are interesting. Jeremiah 18 and Ezekiel 33. Because they are, Ezekiel's a little bit longer, has more detail. Jeremiah says it pretty succinctly. The idea is this. If I say to either a person or a nation, I'm going to bless you for your righteousness. If they, listen, if they repent of their righteousness, that is, if they turn from their righteousness and they become wicked, the blessings I said I would give them, I will not give them. I'll destroy them. But if I tell a nation, I'm going to destroy you, or I tell a person, I'm going to destroy you, and they repent, then I will bless them. It's not God being double-minded. It is God communicating to us how much emphasis he places on what I'll call the turn. It's the turn. See, karma is this. I will weigh how much good versus how much bad and give you what you deserve. The Christian faith is looking for a turn. You might have this much good, but if you turn toward evil, beware. The chastening of the Lord is coming. But you can also have this much evil, and all he has to do is see the turn, and you're under his blessing. Because he's not weighing it out that way. He's looking to see what's in the heart of the person that has turned. That turn is so powerfully motivating to God that it can move him from blessing to cursing and from cursing to blessing just when he sees the turn. That's repentance. That's repentance. Repentance has the power. Listen, this is, a, this is an outrageous statement. Repentance has the power to change God. Not in his essence, not in his character, but in the way he relates to you. It's an amazing thing, the power of repentance. Repentance before God. Listen to this. This is part of the power of repentance. Repentance before God is not ashamed to repent before man. This woman is repenting before Jesus, and therefore she couldn't care less who sees her. Simon's here. However many guests are present, 
I will repent. And I don't care who it's in front of. I don't care who sees it. You can apply that in a lot of different ways. I've said this many times. Parents, one of the, one of the things that I would encourage most in parenting is to model for your children the humility of seeking forgiveness. Do not fall for the lie that because you're a parent in the position of authority that you always should be right. That you need to protect their ability to respect you by never showing weakness and admitting that you're wrong. It will do the exact opposite. It will steal your respect because it will embitter their souls. Children can respect a person that is able to admit that they were wrong and to say, forgive me. It builds their trust in your decision-making for the future. Their confidence goes up that if he's wrong, he'll change course. I can follow someone like that. I can't follow someone that'll double down no matter how wrong it is. See, the, the power to repent before God it is, it is almost impossible to teach our children how much they need to be forgiven by God while at the same time showing them that we ourselves have never been in need of forgiveness and will admit no wrong. Our example is undermining the lesson of the gospel that we're trying to teach them. When we're wrong, we just need to say we were wrong and to ask someone to forgive us. The willingness to repent before God is not ashamed to repent before man. The third thing is this. My brothers and sisters, there are proper times for strong expressions. <laughs> yeah. Okay, none of us is Jesus, but let's just do the exercise for a minute. Um, you came to church this morning, you're sitting there in your, in your row there, minding your own business. And someone walks up to you and falls down at your feet and grabs you by the shoes and just starts sobbing and crying tears on your blue suede shoes. Right? And there they are. How many of you would feel a little uncomfortable? Right? Acknowledging that there's a certain amount of culture involved in this, and there is, please hear this. All of us can, can use adjustments in certain ways. And my brothers and sisters, sometimes, sometimes it's even healthy to be a little extravagant. Sometimes it's good to move beyond our comfort zone and be a little extravagant. This woman's level of repentance was matched by the fervency with which she sought it. The depth of her sin was the depth of her cry for, for forgiveness. And it was appropriate to do so. Um, out of curiosity, let me do this for the fun of it. How many of you know that Christians don't worship exactly the way we do everywhere in the world? 
Africans, the, the ones I've been around, do not know how to pray quietly. No one ever taught them to pray quietly. I laid in a room, in, in a room, what would have been called a room, in Mozambique, Africa, and these, these two, two African brothers that were down the property from me would wake up before the sun came up and just start shouting in prayer. Together. They would just, and they would, they started, and I, 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 would, I mean, I was torn between, like, you could do that a little more quietly, and if God doesn't answer them, he's not going to answer anybody. Because <laughs> the fervent thing, they've got that. They've got that. You know, to, to say we could come out of our shells a little bit sometimes. How many of you, if you were there worshiping and they broke into song the way they broke into song, how many of you would feel a, 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 a tug of war between, boy, I've never sung and worshiped this way. It's awkward for me to do so. But I also feel uncomfortable being the only one who's not. Can you picture that? How many would try to join in to the best of your ability? Right? Why? Because we, we look at that and we say, there's nothing wrong with that. And the reality is, it might actually be healthy to stretch ourselves a little bit that way sometimes. It might actually be good for us. It was fascinating to me. Uh, well, I'm going to stop. I was about to tell a story I shouldn't tell. I, I, my prayer is the Lord will challenge us with an example like this, that we don't just dismiss it quickly, but we acknowledge that, that when something has a, a, enough force behind it, whether it's the guilt that needs to be forgiven or it's the thankfulness that needs to express praise, that it can come out and it can come out exuberantly. And it's a good thing when it does. It's a good thing when it does. All right, close. Last thing about this woman. What does this woman's story teach us? Well, the first thing is this. Here's what it doesn't teach us. It does not teach us that you have to sin greatly before you can love deeply. That's what it sounds like on the surface, but that's not the intention. Oh, you poor people that haven't done anything really, 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 really bad. You'll never love Jesus very much. You got to have done something really nasty to love Jesus a whole lot. That's not the point of, the, of the, the lesson. What is it teaching us? The main point is that love is the true expression of a living faith, and it's the consequence of forgiveness. That when I understand that I have been forgiven, I should be motivated by love. When I understand that, when I have felt the, and, and sensed the wonder of forgiveness, it ought to express itself as love toward my Savior. This woman is commended for her faith that saved her. Love, her love is the true expression of a living faith and it's the consequence of having been forgiven. 
She was forgiven much, so she loved much. Her love was the consequence of having been forgiven. We read it and sometimes we think, well, because she loved much, she was, she was forgiven. No, it was because she had been forgiven. It was that, that was the thing that drove the amount of love that she had. Okay? The last thing that we need to see here is this. Boy, this thing is just really tough this morning. There it goes. That... That one's, listen to this, it's not the amount of sin, it is your awareness of sin. It is your awareness of sin. So, you know, when, when we have the opportunity to see how sinful sin is, and whether or not we've done it, we come face to face with what is inside of us, at least in potential. When you really come face to face with that, it puts you in the position of knowing that there is no one that is worse than you and you are better than no one. That kind of a revelation leaves the door open for all of us to love equally. But small love is really more of an indication of one's lack of awareness of how much they've been forgiven. It's often an indication of how little we have faced, how much we owed, and how much we've been forgiven. It would not be a bad prayer to pray, Lord, open my eyes to how much you have forgiven me. That would be one equivalent to saying, Lord, teach me to love you more. Because the two go hand in hand. When you know how much you've been forgiven, you will love greatly. Just because you know what he did for you. I want to close this way. How many remember that old song, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice? It's the outward expression. I do lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. I know it's an old song. It's not the hippest style of music. We're going to sing it anyways. And I want us to take a moment to bow and to pray. Uh, you may, I recognize that there was not a hint of any patriotic direction in this message on the 4th of July. But could I just, could I just close by saying this? I really do believe that the greatest need our nation has is to learn to repent like this woman did. Man, if, 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 if someone in a position of authority would stand up and preach a better version of this message and call the nation to fall at Jesus' feet like this woman did and repent, I think it'd be a good thing, right? A national repentance it might rekindle some of the love that this nation has for so long professed to have toward God and toward the Christian faith. You can take this in the most broad sense and pray for our nation this morning, or you can take it very personally. Maybe there's forgiveness you're struggling with. 
Maybe there's a coldness in your heart toward Christ that you're struggling with. And you just need to ask God to rekindle that love for you. Be, be advised. It may come with a certain amount of conviction, with a certain amount of him reminding you the depth of sin from which he had to rescue you. To restore that love to its, its fever pitch where it should be. But as we sing it, and before we pray, let's sing it not only as a statement, but let's sing it as a request. I do love you. I, 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 I was thinking of it this way as I was preparing. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I love, help my unlove. Lord, I forgive, help my unforgiveness. Right? That, that that statement can be applied in a lot of ways. So let's sing it as a statement of truth. We do love you, Lord. But let's sing it also as a request that the Lord would rekindle that kind of love in our hearts for him this morning. Would you sing it with me?